And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you were to ask just a a good group of Christians uh, what words they associate with doctrine, you'd probably hear things such as boring, irrelevant, you know, some other few choice words. We tend to be pragmatists, pragmatists who view the doctrines of the Bible as something that interests theologians and, and seminary students, strange bunch that they are. But we want something practical. We want to know how to deal with the problems that we face every day. So we tend to skip the doctrine and go straight to the how-tos. Now, the Apostle Paul, he would be baffled by that approach. He would view it as building a house without a foundation. In all of his letters, he sets forth first the doctrine and then draws the practical applications out from it. Now, in Romans, he spends 11 chapters laying the foundation of doctrine before he gets really practical in chapters 12 through 16. However, even in this first 11 chapters, he can't resist drawing out uh, some practical implications of the doctrines that he has just set forth. And that's what we have here in chapter 5. He gives us some wonderful blessings that flow from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's what he's covered all the way back from chapter 319 through chapter 425 that we looked at last week, okay? Seven or eight uh, weeks worth of sermons on justification by faith alone. Now, in in, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the word rejoice uh, occurs three times. Um, Paul says that he rejoices in the hope of glory. That's verse 2. He rejoices in his tribulations. Can I get amen? I hear laughing. I don't hear any amens. Yeah, he rejoices in his tribulations. That's verse 3. We'll, Lord willing, cover that next week. And he rejoices in God in verse 11. The theme of reconciliation that we find there in verses 10 and 11, that ties directly back into verse 1 and with this theme of peace with God. So we could view this entire section as rejoicing in the blessings of justification. Now today we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. That's what uh, Joseph read just a minute ago. And it's where Paul sets forth three blessings that come from justification. So justification by faith gives us peace with God. It gives us access to His grace, and it gives us joyous confidence that we will share in His glory. Well, let's bow to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we simply bow the knee. We submit to You, understanding that apart from You, we are nothing and we can do nothing. Apart from Your Spirit, we are useless. So, Father, we pray that Your Spirit would be here today to give us discernment, give us wisdom, give us the knowledge we need, Father, to see You, to see Jesus for who You really are. Father, help us as we lift Him up. Pray that You would draw people to You today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, number one, three major points. Number one, justification by faith gives us peace with God. There in verse one, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, now I just told you what was chapter four all about, justification by faith. He says, therefore, based on what I just told you, justification by faith, um, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we jump into this, I need for you to understand or to see the distinction between peace with God and the peace of God. Now, you're probably familiar with Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. 
But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, right? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds uh, in Christ Jesus. Now, the peace of God is a marvelous thing. How many of you have ever had or experienced the peace of God when you were in a situation and you weren't expecting to find peace? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely amazing. That's the peace of God. It's associated with our immediate circumstances that may not be going as we had planned, <laughs> and yet we have peace in the middle of whatever that storm is that we're enduring at the moment. On the other hand, peace with God, that is a very different thing. Peace with God is the most wonderful gift that anyone could ever possess. This doesn't, doesn't refer to the subjective inner feeling of peace, you know, that we, that we have. Uh, rather, it refers to the objective fact of peace. Um, people may feel at peace with God when uh, they are actually in danger of His judgment. Paul uses three words in his epistles to describe the relationship between man and God prior to salvation, prior to Christ. And those three words that we see often are enemies, enmity, and hostility. Just think about that. Before Christ, you're actually enemies of God. There's this enmity and this hostility between you and God if Christ is not our mediator. Remember, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy there that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. If you don't have that, then you're enemies. You have enmity with God and hostility. Now, because of the universality of sin, the human race is by nature at war with God. Now, many feel at peace with God, but that's simply because they don't understand God's absolute holiness or the depth of their own sinfulness. But because of sin, the wrath of God abides on all who do not believe in and obey Jesus Christ. That's what John says there in, in John 3.36. Now, Paul, back in uh, Romans 1.18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What that means is that unless people come to peace with God on His terms, not their terms, His terms, when they die, they will face His eternal judgment. They may be, may be the world's greatest philanthropists. Maybe they've given millions to help the poor, but their philanthropy will not atone for their many sins. Maybe they're the nicest, most loving people you have ever known. But all the niceness... And love that anyone can show will not atone for the many sins that they have committed. They may be fastidious about their religious duties, but the most religious people in the world will not gain entrance to heaven by their religious works. None of these things gain genuine peace with God. And that's the subject that we're talking about today or right now, peace with God. So how do we get it? Genuine peace with God means that we are truly reconciled with Him. We are no longer enemies with God. We are no longer, no, there's no longer any enmity between us or hostility that's gone. Scripture says we're now friends. We do not need to fear His judgment. A couple things I want you to see here. A, to have peace with God, you must be justified by faith. 
That's what Paul says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, you have peace with God. So the result of justification by faith is that you have peace with God. Now, if you don't know what it means to be justified by faith, just go back to the past seven or eight messages, beginning there in 321 all the way through 425. It's what we've been talking about for seven or eight weeks now. Justification by faith means that God declares an ungodly person to be righteous based on that person's trusting Christ's death as the payment for his or her sins. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. It's a gift of grace alone. Paul's statement implies that we can know for certain that we have been justified by faith and that we now are at peace with God. If we're justified by adding good works to what Christ did on the cross, there's a problem with that. We can never know that we've done enough. When have you done enough penance to be justified? When have you served enough or given enough money to the church? When have you been good enough? You see, the system of works keeps everyone uncertain about whether or not they're really saved, and it keeps them dependent on the church. But Paul implies here that we can know that we are justified by faith alone. We trust in Jesus' death on our behalf to pay for our sins. As a consequence, we do not need to fear God's judgment. Paul tells us here in just a couple more chapters, Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is now no... uh, There is there... I'm trying to mix King James and NASB and I'm getting confused. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But note, B, the second thing here, to have peace with God, you must have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Redeemer and your Mediator. You know what a Mediator is? He's a go-between, okay? Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This means that peace peace with God is not due to any merits or efforts on our part, but rather through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, Douglas Moo, he observes that all that God has for us is to be found in and through Christ Jesus. He also says that that is a persistent motif in Romans 5 through 8. I want you to listen to these verses. Peace with God comes through our, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. Our boasting in God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 11. Grace reigns through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's verse 21. The gift of God bringing eternal life is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's chapter 6, verse 23. Thanks for deliverance due to God is through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's chapter 7, verse 25. And the love of God from which nothing can ever separate the believer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans eight thirty nine. Now, it's significant that these are found at the very end of chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. There is a definite focus on this idea going on here with Paul. Now, the full title, Our Lord Jesus Christ, that looks at all that He is for us. First, He's our Lord. That focuses on His um, deity and His sovereign authority. We are His subjects. We are His slaves. When you become a Christian, there's no option to believe in Jesus as your Savior and then at a later date decide, oh, now I want to follow you as Lord. He is both Savior and Lord. That means that you begin the Christian life by submitting all all of yourself that you're aware of to all that you know of Christ. 
And as you grow in Him, you're going to learn more of who He is and what He commands from you. Uh, You're going to see more areas in your life that you need to submit to Him, including your thought life. Jesus is the only rightful Lord of everything. But the word, but the name Jesus, this is referring to His full humanity. He took on human flesh in the incarnation, yet apart from sin. He lived in perfect dependence on the Father and in perfect obedience to His will. He went to the cross to atone for our sins. Now, as Christ, we've got Lord, we Jesus, and now Christ. Jesus is God's anointed one, the promised Messiah. Now, uh, Christ is Greek, and Messiah is Hebrew for the same title, anointed one. As such, Jesus is God's appointed prophet, priest, and king. As God's anointed prophet, Jesus spoke the very words of God to us. As God's high priest, Jesus offered himself once for all to atone for our sins. Now he lives to make intercession for us. And as God's anointed king, Jesus is the rightful sovereign of our lives. This means that the only way to have peace with God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way of salvation. So first, justification by faith gives us peace with God. I hope you have that peace today. Number two, justification by faith gives us access to our standing in the riches of God's grace. Paul continues in verse 2 there, Through Him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, some early manuscripts, they omit by faith, but the context makes it clear that we receive all of God's benefits through faith in Christ. Two things here again. A, our access to God comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, through Him is referring to Christ. Then he talks about us obtaining access. Now, that may point to our initial introduction into the sphere of God's grace. The word is used in extra-biblical Greek, Greek not in the Bible, for introducing someone to royalty. Other New Testament authors use the verb to refer to bringing someone into another person's presence. So it could refer to our initial introduction to God's grace when we first believed. Or it may refer to our ongoing access to the treasures of grace. Paul is the only author to use the noun for this word. And the two other times that he uses it, he uses it to refer to our ongoing access. In Ephesians 2:18 he says, "For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to God the Father." In Ephesians 3:12 he adds, "In whom and the whom is Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him." Now, I tend to lean lean this way here. Uh, Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can come again and again and again into the presence of Almighty God to receive grace for every need. This means that we don't need another way of access to God. Jesus is the only way. Um, So, And He gives us access anytime and anywhere. Now, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he told a story about Abraham Lincoln that kind of illustrates this point. A southern soldier who had been freed from a prison camp because he was too wounded to return to active duty, he was seeking access to President Lincoln. You see, he had a brother who was in another prisoner camp, and 
the mother was dependent on that son for her, for her living. And he just wanted to go in and ask Lincoln, he's already been captured, let him go back home and take care of mother. But the guards wouldn't let him pass the door to go in and see President Lincoln. Well, one day, the president's young son, Tad Lincoln, he was walking near the White House and saw the wounded veteran uh, crying as he sat on a bench. And he went over there and asked him what the matter was. The soldier explained that he wanted to get in to see the president to tell him about his brother, but the guards wouldn't let him in. Immediately, the young fellow grabbed him by the hand and walked him right up to the door as the soldier saluted, and he walked him right inside to talk to President Lincoln. He now had access. Now, Barnhouse says that that story, it may be apocryphal, but it illustrates what the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, has done for us. We were destitute, we were alone, we were wounded by sin. We had no way on our own to come into God's holy presence. On the cross, Jesus tore the veil into the Holy of Holies. When we come to Him in faith, He clothes us with His righteousness. Now, He takes us by the hand and He leads us again and again. Anytime we have need into the presence of His Father. What a wonderful blessing to have access to God. Well, B, our access to God puts us in permanent standing in the riches of God's grace. Paul pictures God's grace as a realm in which we stand. It's it's a reality. The perfect tense of have obtained and in which we stand, that implies a past action with ongoing results. In other words, we have gained entrance and now have ongoing standing in the realm of God's grace. Now stand, that implies kind of a solid footing or a place where we belong by right, not any right of our own, but by our union with Jesus Christ. He is the rightful heir. In Ephesians 2.7, That's one of my favorite verses. Paul says that in the ages to come, God will show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 3.8, he describes it as the unfathomable riches of Christ. Do you understand it's going to take for all eternity for God to show us the various treasure rooms loaded with all the blessings that come to us by free grace through Jesus Christ. It's as if we've been given an unlimited number of checks to the bank account of a billionaire, say like Jeff Bezos, who would have like to have a little bit of his money. And it says, use it anytime you have a need. Now, either you relate to God by trying to earn His favor, typically by keeping the law or doing good things, which only brings His wrath when you disobey His law, or by reserving, receiving His undeserved favor through all that Christ did for you on the cross. It seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? When you trust in Christ, He becomes your way of access into the presence of the Father, who now relates to you as a loving Father. How many didn't have a loving Father? I can't raise my hand. I had a great dad. He loved me and I loved him. I understand there may be some of you out there who had a father who was always harsh with you, always no was his answer. I want you to listen how Paul describes the riches of God's grace in which we stand. This comes from chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Man. Again, the way to gain access to permanent standing in God's grace is by being justified by faith alone in Christ alone. So, justification by faith gives us a couple things so far. Peace with God and access to the surpassing riches of His grace. Now finally, number three, justification by faith gives us the joyous confidence that we will share His glory. Paul concludes these two packed verses saying, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. A couple things here. Sharing in God's glory is our certain future. Hope in the New Testament is not something uncertain. It's not like when we say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's because we don't know whether it's going to rain or not tomorrow. No, it's absolutely certain in the New Testament hope because it is based on the sure promises of God who never fails. But we hope for it because we haven't received it yet. The promise hasn't come to us yet. It's as if when you were a kid and your dad promised, hey, for your birthday, I'm going to buy you a new bike. Now, you know that your dad doesn't lie and he's not, he doesn't tease you about stuff like this and you know that he's got the money to get the bike. So, um, he's going to keep his promise. But your birthday is still a month away. The bike is yours and it's certain, but you don't have it yet. So, you hope for it. What does Paul mean when he says that we hope in the glory of God? Well, I think in part he means that we eagerly look forward to seeing the glory of God. God's glory is the radiant splendor of His being. It's the visible manifestation of all of His perfections. This was what Moses asked to see in Exodus 33. And what did God tell him? Nope. I'll let you see my backside. He put his hand over the cliff and he walked by. And then he took it off and as he's walking by... Moses could see his backside because God told him no man can see God's face and live. Now, when we get to heaven, guess what? We're going to see God and it will be the most beautiful, stupendous sight you have ever seen. Paul also means that he hopes to see the glory of Christ. Do you remember in his high priestly prayer, Jesus asked that his disciples might see his glory. What about Peter, James, and John? Didn't they get a glimpse of Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration there in Matthew 17? John saw it again in his vision there in Revelation 1. Paul was blinded by that uh, that heavenly vision on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. He saw it again when he was caught up to the third heaven there in 2 Corinthians 12. But in heaven we will see the glory of the risen Lamb who was slain. But beyond seeing the glory of the Father and the glory of the Lord Jesus, we are promised that we will also share in His glory. We lost that glory as a race when Adam sinned. But when we see Jesus, we'll be fully conformed to the image of the Son, free from all sin and from every shortcoming. Thus, we will be glorified with Him. It's our certain future. How many long for that day? How many recognize sin in your life and it immediately makes you wish, man, 
I wish I was glorified. That means you probably got to die or Jesus got to come again first, right? So, yeah, but that's what, we, that's what we're looking forward to. Uh, now, this just isn't a truth that we're supposed to grasp with our intellect. So, B, the confidence of sharing in God's glory causes us joyous rejoicing right now, in the here and now. Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, rejoice, that's a favorite word with Paul. And literally, it means to boast in or to glory in. It, kind, it contains the idea of both confidence and joy. It can actually be rendered we are joyfully confident of. Now, it's wrong to boast in man. We understand that. But it is right to boast in God. That brings Him glory that He deserves. But to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, as I said, is not just an intellectual truth that we affirm. It's also an emotional response that we should have even in our tribulations. As verse 3 says, we rejoice in our tribulations. Now, in my case, as perhaps you, perhaps you will admit for yourself, I just don't spend enough time meditating on the hope of seeing and sharing in the glory of God. Barnhouse, again, illustrated the joys of heaven by picturing a soldier in a cold, damp foxhole eating K-rations. He has to stay there day and night uh, to hold the unit's position against the enemy. Then one night, he hears a voice call out his name and his serial number. It's another soldier who tells him, Hey, I have orders to replace you. You're going to go out on the next Red Cross flight. An order has come for you to go home. They're going to give you a hot shower and clean clothes. You have to go home and eat your mother's southern fried chicken with mashed potatoes and gravy. And you're going to have apple pie and, and, and ice cream for dessert. And the soldier replies, Surely you don't mean that I've got to, uh, I have to leave the, this nice foxhole and give up my K-rations, do you? Now we smile. Barnett says we smile at the absurdity of that idea. And there are some perhaps... Some believers, perhaps some of you, who are unwilling to leave your foxhole in this life to go to the heavenly home to sit down at the banquet table of our God and to fellowship with Him in the joys of heaven. End quote. So to conclude, I, I just want to ask you three quick questions. Number one, have you been justified by faith so that you now enjoy peace with God, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Number two, do you frequently utilize your access to God and the riches of His, riches of His grace through our, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ? And then number three, do you rejoice in your certain future of sharing God's glory? Now, these are just a few of the blessings of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Lord willing, over the next few weeks there, we'll finish out those 11 verses that tell us more abundance that we get because we have been justified by faith. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You just for the truth of Your Word. It is dependable. Uh, you are faithful. Uh, you can be no other. And so, God, I pray that You would help us to see and understand. I pray that You would just take the scales off of our eyes and the, the wax out of our ears and the hardness of our heart away, Father, that we can see Jesus for who He really is. If there's anybody in here this morning that doesn't know You through Your Son, Jesus, I pray that You would do that, that You would speak to their heart. And, Father, take out their heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh that may, they may know you. And Father, we'll give you praise for it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you do not know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, 
Uh, we've said it several times this morning, that is the only, the only benefit you're going to ever have with God is through Jesus Christ. You trust in what He did on the cross. You admit you're a sinner to begin with, right? Um, Paul tells us earlier, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. Nobody's unique in that, all right? Having sinned, we're separated from God. There's only one thing that can um, do away with that gap, that separation between you and God, and that's for you to trust what Jesus did on the cross for your eternal life. You can't do anything good enough to recommend yourself to God. Jesus has already done that. I encourage you this morning, you to you, you ask God to forgive your sins and you trust Jesus and what and his accomplished work. It's done. You just have to trust it, believe it, receive it. God will make you a child of his today. If you're a believer, I hope that you're uh, probably one of the main things is understanding that as a believer, you now have peace with God. You no longer need, need to fear God's judgment. Now, does that mean you can just go on sinning? Paul's addresses this in chapter 6. Absolutely not. What happens when you sin? You're going to get punished. It's in Hebrews 12 that he, he, we find out that he, he treats us believers as we would cheat, treat our children. And when our children mess it up, what do we do? We discipline them. When we mess up, when we sin, he disciplines us. But it does say that he does it out of love. We don't have to fear His judgment, His wrath. If, you, if you've been justified by faith, you are now at peace with God. Nothing can be better. I hope that you're living in light of that. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.